take a while to reply to an email and then they are like sorry I um, took so long to reply like they have the whole preamble at the beginning and it's kind of you don't want to be like oh sorry it's been so long since I made a podcast you guys I'm not going to do that don't do that okay. that's the worst okay um, it's also bad when it's it's really only bad when people do that for their vlogs or something mm. yeah yeah <laughs> Welcome back to Metaphor Loop, the podcast where I talk to programmers about how they think about programming. I'm Max Jacobson, and I'm excited today to be joined by Meredith Edwards, soon-to-be software engineer at Stride. Welcome, Meredith. Thank you so much, Max. Delighted to be here. While I was preparing a little bit for this conversation, I skimmed through your recent tweets, uh, which was... um, (laughs) Just a way to, you know, load some Meredith into my memory. And uh, one thing that I thought was super interesting, I was looking at recent, um, it's kind of like a thing going around Twitter recently of like, how did you get into programming? Mm -hmm. And your answer I thought was really interesting. You said that you have a BA in English (laughs) and a BST in software engineering. What, What is a BST? Sure, a BST is a special degree an acronym that stands for blood, sweat, and tears. And I'm actually, so I didn't know that you were going there with that question, but I'm glad you asked me this because this is always a question that you get asked at interviews, right? Like, especially because so many engineers due to boot camps are career switchers. And I remember when I graduated from Flatiron and I had to answer this question, like I always felt this pressure to say, or to come up with this narrative that was like such and such happened. And then I fell in love with coding and then I would just like sort of create not a lie, (laughs) but not the whole truth. But then in my interview at stride, it was a point where like I had stopped interviewing and, um, I, oh, I was talking to sort of like an exec level person there and he asked me, he was like, oh, how did you wind up at a coding bootcamp? And, oh, I was like, finally, like now I have an offer. I don't, I can just like say, say, I can tell the truth. (laughs) Even though I realized I was like, oh, all this time I should have been telling the truth. But like, um, in terms of, I'll just say quickly, like for me, in terms of why I chose to go to a coding bootcamp, like it wasn't because I told myself, oh, I could sit in front of a computer and spend like 12 hours a day trying to solve problems through code. Like that, I don't know. Like I think I would get really tired of that after maybe like four hours. But um, what what made me want to do this was like outside of the practical factors, like maybe job security and money, which are which are important too, it was because I was taking this online class. It's just like one of those millions of ones that are online. Um, this like CS 101 class through Stanford. And I loved the teacher. He's this guy named Nick Parlanti. He's probably still teaching at Stanford. Um, and <laughs> I mean, yeah, for me, it's like, and maybe it doesn't make sense that you would choose to pursue um, coding just because you liked 
the person who is teaching you coding. But for me, it was like, oh, I would love to be in his position one day where I can maybe not like be a teacher at a code school, but be in some position where I am um, teaching other people to code and being as much like Nick Parlante as I could. <laughs> All right. That was interesting. That already opened up a whole can of threads that I want to explore. Um, but thank you for explaining. Uh, just quick clarification. We don't mean literal blood, sweat, and tears. Or do we? Um, definitely not blood. I don't yeah. think so. Definitely. I mean, sweat, I guess. Sure. In, in terms of like, I mean, there's not like a ton of physical labor involved in coding. So not sweat in the sense of like, oh, you would sweat if you were unloading a truck for a grocery store. But like, oh, oh, like sweat in the sense of like, oh, when you get really nervous and sweat, that kind of sweat and totally tears. Like I remember when I was at Flatiron, I don't know how many times I cried, but like at least twice. And then in my first job, I cried at least three times. I think I've definite, except with the exception of when I was a TA at Flatiron, I've cried like in front of my bosses at my job. Um, so yeah, tears. <laughs> um, thank you for sharing. The um, okay, so the first like big topic that I want to explore, you've kind of started walking us in that direction, is uh, education. So you mentioned, um, or I mentioned uh, from that tweet that you have a, um, or actually no, I said BA in English, but it's also education uh, you study oh, as well. Oh, I have a master's in education. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I think I transcribed the tweet incompletely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so education. I want to talk about specifically um, uh, education in general and specifically related to programming. Mm -hmm. And um, how do you feel about the ways that programming is uh, are taught yeah. uh, these days? And um, the other area that I'm interested interested in exploring is how does um, teaching affect your work? Sure. So sure, you sure. remain uh, involved in teaching in some extent. I know you've um, volunteered for things like RailsBridge uh, teaching. Um, so it seems like it's something that's still part of your life and um, mentality. Uh, so would you agree with that characterization? <laughs> and how do you um, feel about, yeah, how teaching and um, learning come into work these yeah. days? Oh, yeah. Like, I will always consider myself a teacher, <laughs> even though I'm not a real teacher because I am not teaching 30 students in a classroom anymore. Um and, oh, I mean, I learned so much from teaching. I know she won't listen to this podcast, but I always have to give credit to my old boss, Jennifer Spalding, my principal, who um, was, I mean, she's the most incredible, like, teacher and leader I've ever met. So she's awesome. And I, and I always say, too, that teaching is the most noble profession. So I feel, I, like, my heart is still very much in, in that work, um, but you asked, oh, your first question was about um, how, like, how I feel about how software is being taught, I think. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I don't have a degree in computer science, so it's, like, it's really hard to answer that question um, seeing both sides of the coin. But, like, I mean, from everything I have experienced, I feel like a 
coding bootcamp is just as valid if, if not perhaps like, you know, more practical, <laughs> a way of learning how to write production code, you know, like code that actually goes into building web apps or mobile apps than a CS degree. Um, of course, that would depend on the college. But in general, I, I'm like a huge fan of this idea that you can go to a school and learn exactly what you were going to be doing at your job. Like, I remember being so surprised, even though I knew, I knew that like, oh, Flatiron is, is all about sort of like job preparation. Um, I was so surprised that when I had my first job, um, I was like, oh, this is like, (laughs) we weren't using like, like some fake form of Ruby or like some like student form of like Ruby on Rails. Like this is actually what people who, who build Ruby on Rails apps use and like all that. So that, I, I mean, that's the first time I ever went to a school where like the work was that applicable, but, um, oh, I think in terms of, uh, I don't know. I have like, a lot more thoughts about, um, the, like, the pace of boot camps or just generally I like, um, oh, I really, and and this isn't, this is definitely not uh, contained within boot camps only, but like, I just really am not a fan of this belief system that like, you know, in, if you're an engineer, you know, like you have to figure out everything for yourself. And it's also really frustrating too, as a young learner to like come across a problem that's really difficult. And then you know, you spend a lot of time trying to solve it. And then, you know, you go to somebody and they're like, oh, you should just Google it. Like everything is, everything is online. I think like that's, that's something that I would try never to do as a teacher. And, um, which was really frustrating to me as a student. Yeah. It sounds like, um, that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of learning that often happens on the job mm-hmm. is, um, you are given some kind of task, which is, designed to accomplish some business goal and it's not explicitly designed for you to learn something and yet part of the goal of you being there is that you want to grow and you want to learn and so you are trying to learn from all of these business oriented Mm -hmm. tasks that you're working on Mm -hmm. Um, and there seems to be some kind of conflict there where um, if your goal at a job is to grow and learn which I think almost everyone I've ever talked to would say that is one of their goals yeah well Yeah, I mean, obviously, as an employee or just as a software developer, you want to be at a place where you're growing and learning for sure. But just even from a company level, uh, you know, it's in the engineering teams and the company's interest to have not only a good sort of onboarding and training period where you're, you know, you are given like extra special time and attention to get to know the code base and the domain logic. But like, um, that I, I see, okay. Like I, this makes me think of a couple things. One, 
So many had this tweet that I thought was so smart. I wish I could remember who it was so I could attribute the smartness to this person. But um, it was a tweet about, like, what is more sustainable? Um, And the options were, one, like, hiring people who... Hiring people who um, already know a ton, right? Like, finding, finding these, like, super skilled people... Um, or, you know, like devoting resources within your team to training. <laughs> and, and, um, to me, like the answer was so clear to others it may not be, but like, and, and I mean, all of this too, like, it just makes me think of, oh, well, this is why you do pair programming, right? Because in, ter- in terms of like, even a super senior engineer is going to need time to get up to speed on the code base itself, right? Like, and sort of like learn learn that system and how to navigate it. Um, but like pair programming is just this incredible natural way of onboarding anyone and also training and like teaching best practices or even just like your team's practices, regardless of whether they're best practices or not, um, <laughs> to, to uh, whoever is new. And I think too, like, um, oh, but I would definitely want you to ask me about, maybe I shouldn't talk a lot about it now, but <laughs> I definitely want you to ask me a lot about like um, the, the resources I've found that are super helpful for learning. I'm happy to go down that road now. You know, I think that we should keep exploring a little bit the, um, uh, yeah, so the the grand theme of this conversation is learning. And so um, learning in explicit uh, educational context is, um, I think, the most obvious uh, context where learning happens, but it's not the only one. And... um, you know, I feel like I've learned so much more since I've been working than I did uh, in the beginning when I also went through the same coding boot camp planner mm-hmm. in school. Uh, we were, I learned a ton there, but then you kind of like, the metaphor I always used for that was it's kind of like getting on one of those moving sidewalks and then for three months you're on a moving sidewalk and you're walking and you are going a little bit faster than you otherwise would and then you are suddenly off the moving sidewalk and you got to keep going. Mm-hmm. And um, ideally the uh, work context is going to, help keep you going and potentially um, you'll do some self-directed things as well. Um, before we move on totally from uh, the like education school context, um, the one other thing I just want to talk about a little bit, it sounds like some of your biggest role models are educators. And um, you're, you mentioned your principal from when you were a teacher. You mentioned a specific um, teacher who you admire. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious to just talk about that and to wrap up this topic yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. more about like uh, what what makes them good role models and um, what do you bring from them yeah, into yeah, your yeah. work yeah. or is it mainly stuff that you would bring into your work as a teacher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think, oh my gosh, yeah. No, like it definitely applies to software for sure. Like um, I... My old principal, Jennifer Spaulding, who's my hero, I love her because, like, she was the one who taught me what it means to be a good leader, right? Like, I remember when I was in college and I was applying to Teach for America, you had to write some kind of essay about leadership, and I don't remember what I wrote, but, like, I remember not having a strong idea of what a leader was, but then... uh 
Principal Spalding, Miss Spalding, <laughs> like what was so incredible about her as a leader? First of all, it was just like, I mean, she, she's she just like everybody enjoys uh, spending time around her. Like she's very warm. She's like very funny. Uh, she definitely makes an effort to be approachable, right? Like she's she's definitely not like leading from uh, on high, and then. It sounds like you're describing the stereotypical software engineer, so <laughs> warm and yeah. um, approachable and accessible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, oh, and, like, just her style of leadership, um, I never, like, knew that somebody could lead by, like, persuasion rather than uh, leading you by fear, right? Because as a student and then often... I don't like leaders you see or, or hear about on television <laughs> or, or whatever, like, you know, they are often like motivating their students or their uh, employees or whatever through concept, like consequence driven management, basically, mm -hmm. which always has a cap. Right. But like, um, yeah, Jen Spaulding showed me that like, oh, it's so much more effective, probably a lot more time consuming, honestly, and like really exhausting she puts so much work into her job but um it's just so much more effective uh to lead through like not only you know like I said persuasion and a lot of it was like she knew a ton about teaching so she could like present her views and like for me as a young teacher I was like oh gosh like everything you say is genius but then even you know she wasn't she wasn't the one making all the decisions either like um I think she was the one, I don't know if she was the one who told me this, but like this was so much, this was like so present in, in how she was principal that like, um, oh, and what I would hear about her as a teacher, right? Like when she used to teach was that when you're a teacher um, and I taught seventh grade ELA, but for the purpose of this, I'll like make an analogy with math because that's maybe a little easier, but like, as a seventh grade math teacher, it doesn't matter if like, it doesn't matter how well you know your algebra or like your geometry or like, you know, um, any of that. It, all that matters is like what you're, what you're able to teach your students. And I think so that applies directly to, um, I mean, yeah, all engineers, but especially when I think of like, oh, what does a good senior engineer look like? It's like, it's not somebody, oh my gosh, like it's mm. definitely not somebody who is just like a container of a large amount of knowledge and can maybe like, um, you know, reverse a binary tree on a whiteboard in like less than five minutes. That to me, like, I don't care about that. Like I care about how... Um, how well they're mentoring the other developers they're working with junior and senior and whatever level, like, uh, because that's more, I mean, it's more important to the performance of the team, but it's also just like more enjoyable to work with that kind of person. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I feel like it can come through in interpersonal interactions on a team and then also, in the actual work of the coding, potentially mm -hmm. writing code that is easy to understand. Um, we oh, yeah. value For like sure. readability and sure. um, where does that come from? I think it comes from a position of 
uh, kind of imagining the person who's reading it and thinking about how to make it make sense to someone else. And mm-hmm. that's kind of exactly what teaching is. And mm-hmm. I feel like that can apply to your work and then potentially also things like your commit messages and PR yeah. descriptions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like for me, um, readability is uh, more important than even something like performance, right? Like, sure, if you have a performance problem, I'm not saying that, like, performance doesn't matter. (laughs) You know, like, you want to have efficient queries to your database. Like, you want to have short load times on your pages. But, like, but, um, so it's not that it doesn't matter, but just in terms of, like, writing code, for me, number one is always, or, like, I'm always trying to write code that is friendly to whoever is going to read it and interact with it. And like a huge part or a huge help of that too is like, um, test because tests serve as documentation and often, or I find that really good tests are a great way. If you, if you go through a test suite, that's a great way of figuring out what, uh, say it's a, you know, like a model spec, like it's a really great way of figuring out what that model does and sort of, it's maybe, um, what do you call them? Like where things could go wrong. Like, you know, you also have like, I, my favorite kind of test to write are the ones not that come when you're, uh, when you first open a file and like, you know, are planning out whatever your model is or whatever piece of code, but like the test that you add in afterwards because you didn't think of some edge case. Maybe the like the sad path tests. <laughs> we talk about the happy path a lot, and yeah. I think it's nice to be happy and focus on that. But the sad path is often where the bodies are buried and where the uh, hacks are and yeah. the awkwardness. So we've talked about uh, education in the school and in the coding school, and um, we started talking a little bit about learning on the job. I think that's the next area that I think would be good to talk about, and. Um, mm-hmm. You opened the door to pairing as a mm-hmm. way that you feel is valuable for um, learning on the job and specifically for onboarding, you mentioned. I'm curious, yes. um, uh, is that the main value for you is uh, helping onboard people so they can become familiar with the code base? Um, and do you see it as like mainly an educational tool or how mm-hmm. do you think about it? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So... Um, I think that that is a huge benefit of pairing, but no, I do not think that that's the, like, that contains the benefits of pairing. So, yes, like, I think regardless of your skill level, pairing is a great way to onboard a new member of a team. And, uh, oh, also in terms of, like, okay, so, you know, you want to work on a dev team that, again, right, like... To me, at least, yes, best practices are important. Like, I want to seek the wisdom of developers who are more experienced than I am and who know more than I do. So in that sense, like, yeah, I'm not dismissing best practices (laughs) in favor of, like, whatever solution that I come up with or my team comes up with. But, like, in general, to me, um, I really want to work on a dev team that has opinions right about like how to build their software and that those I mean more importantly that like 
they've the team has has maybe some, or not maybe, but definitely some like agreed upon best practices for them in their domain. So again, like not only onboarding in the sense of, oh, here is like, you know, here are all our nightly jobs. And these, this is like the data we're processing. And, you know, if this bug comes up here, you know where to look, but, but um, onboarding in the sense of like, here is how we do things. And like, here is how you can, like, we want you to code like us basically, or, I mean, better. And the ideal is like either, you know, the person's like, Oh yeah, that's a really great way of doing things. Or that person again, like, because you're pairing, you're talking about this, that person knows a better way. And then like that becomes the standard that the team uses, but just like in general, um, to me, like frequent talking on a team and, and actually I've ever worked, I've only ever worked on really small teams. Um, like a team anywhere from like four to six developers, but I would consider those really small and, Mm -hmm. and those not being like smaller teams within a larger team, but those being complete engineering teams for whatever company. Um, so it's totally, I mean, it's so it's, Oh, like you would think that because there are only five people on this team that things wouldn't be lost in the shuffle or things wouldn't get communicated, but they are. (laughs) And, Oh, Oh, another good thing about pairing, um, that I love too, is that, no, I, I just really love that when a team is pairing, everybody feels this like greater ownership of the code because you are working on anything, right? Anything and everything. So it's not like, oh, like Joe Schmo over here, like he's our database guy. And like whenever anything goes wrong with the database, he's going to work on it. And like, you know, Meredith... Um, <laughs> she's, she's like our react girl. I don't know react, but, <laughs> but like, uh, you know, anytime something goes wrong on the front end, it's like, you know, a JavaScript problem, it's going to be Meredith. And, and that to me, like, ugh, I just like, ugh, that's not, <laughs> that's not fun. <laughs> I don't like, I don't like the like siloing of knowledge too. Right. Because it's like, you want every member of your team to know as much as possible and like be as flexible and dynamic as possible as working with your code base. Otherwise, like what about if you lose somebody on the team, you know, like you're losing everything they know. I think that's a scary thought to, to kind of be that person. And you sort of feel like you can never go on vacation or Mm -hmm. you can never, uh, or like if you left the company that maybe that would be like, uh, (laughs) uh, really unfair to them because now yeah. they're screwed on this one area. Um, yeah. And if you do have frequent pairing, that just sort of can't happen. Like if some issue does come up on the front end and then maybe Meredith would be involved in the, uh, this hypothetical Meredith who is React Girl <laughs> would be involved in the fixing the issue or implementing yeah. the feature and, um, yeah. but so would whoever. And then the next time something goes wrong, whoever um, maybe Joe Schmo to use the character we've already established <laughs> yeah. and started to identify with yeah. and root yeah. for in a way. Yeah. Uh, now Joe Schmo is also <laughs> React Girl. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and that seems really winning. And I think that there are, um, uh, that seems um, 
it's kind of thing that you hear pushback occasionally on um, on that on uh, pairing as like for example some organizations have like policies where it's all pairing all the time yeah. others every organization where I've ever worked has ever been like the default mode is not pairing but then you're free to pair if you think that would be valuable yeah but then yeah. the way that usually plays out is no one ever pairs yeah, uh, yeah. except like for example if there's like um, some issue on production and you're like going into a, the production server maybe then you pair because you're like I'm a little nervous about yeah, this yeah <laughs> uh, I need a second set of eyes like pairing only in crises but never for like positive like normal yeah, days yeah. Um, what do you think about like the? are you aware of like this pushback or what do you say to people that have pushback Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's a hard question, right? Because like I'm coming at this from somebody who is not only a huge advocate of pairing, but like I love pairing. Pairing makes me so excited. For example, um, it was like, oh, like a couple of weekends ago, we were, well, I wouldn't say like we were like strictly pairing, but we were working together on solving some open source issues with RailsBridge. And that was a ton of fun. And for me, like, um, maybe it's because I'm still such a young developer and there are amazing benefits to me working with people who have more experience than I do because it's like, oh, I can learn so much from them. And I feel like I can go further and faster and smarter when I have another experienced developer sitting alongside of me. Um, but I want to try to answer your question. You are asking about the people who, or, or like this, I the like, you know, opinions that are pushbacks against pairing. And like, I mean, again, it's 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 hard to say without being able to you know, quote, a research study that has been done. And I also don't believe necessarily in, you know, mandating that people work a certain way, right? Like that, that would be something that I would really struggle with, like, especially, okay, so my dream, uh, or at least like my, say, like five year uh, goal is to become an engineering lead and lead a team of my own. And like one question that I have thought about and I don't have an answer to is like, would I mandate um, pairing? Right. And I think that like I would, if I say I started from scratch and I were the team lead and then I hired, you know, four people, then it would be like, it would be, that's, that's an easy decision to make because I'm like, I'm only going to be hiring people who are open to pairing to begin with. Right. But like, it's different if you become a leader on an existing team and you have people who are very resistant to pairing. Like I don't, for me thinking about management, I'm like, Oh, I, I, I don't know that I would feel comfortable or like feel effective by asking people to do things the way that I think that um, they're best done. However, I will say that like when I imagine that situation, I imagine it that like, oh, you know, half of the team is super into pairing and then we pair all the time and the people who aren't pairing see how much fun we're having and are really jealous <laughs> and they're converted and they're like, Oh gosh, like we're missing out. But honestly, I mean, uh, 
I don't know. To me, also, like, the argument has been made, oh, you know, why would you have two people working on one thing when you can have two people working on two things? But tons of things, tons of factors uh, make a pair more productive in terms of if you're pairing with somebody, you're not like I am now when I'm working alone, checking Twitter (laughs) or my email. (laughs) Uh, right and and then also just the we haven't talked about this a lot but like uh i think and i wish i wish there were research to back this up you know and like there may be but like i just really believe in the idea of two people talking through a problem together because you know it's 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 like one person is like talking out loud and the person hears those ideas and it's so much easier to like find holes in other people's ideas or like find holes in mm. other people's test cases um, than to like play both those roles yourself to like write the code and to critique the code. And plus you just get exhausted. You're like, I already wrote all this code. It's working. I don't want to, you know, like I can, I can, commit this code (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. i i totally i i love that i think that um for me when i've done pairing part of the value is just having someone else to kind of hold me accountable to following the team standards because it is in my personal experience pretty easy to be like "Eh, this is fine this is good enough and like i could add a bunch more test cases but i already wrote the code i know it works like uh but then someone else is there. They're like, what, are you not going to test those cases? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So the other, um, I think it's a great point. And the other, like, uh, idea I want to explore for a second is um, you mentioned that as a, someone who's kind of early in your career as an engineer. Yeah. Uh, that may be part of why you like it. Yes. I'm curious if there's anything else, any other qualities uh, about you that you think uh, make you like it. Anything oh, yeah. else about you in particular or other people that you know who are really into pairing. What do you have in common? What are the, is there there anything about you that makes you like it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for sure. Like, um, Oh, well one on a more in quote unquote intellectual or not intellectual, but like intellect related. Uh, I, Oh, I'm definitely somebody who learns through talking. And so for me, pairing, uh, it's, is like perfectly suited to that, but just like personality wise, I will say, I will say that like, I haven't always loved pairing. We did pairing at, um, Flatiron school. We did a lot of pairing and I was not a fan of pairing. Mm. And then I think it maybe had to do with the fact that like, I still felt like, I just still felt so lost that like, Um, I think I, if I had like let go of my insecurities more and just embraced what I didn't know and felt comfortable, like talking through ideas or, or like a ways to solve a code problem at my current level, then like pairing would have been amazing for me. But as it was like, I was just, I was just so, um, scared of like letting other people into my brain that I just like, I was like, Oh my God, this is terrible. I just want to learn this by myself in the corner and not (laughs) have anybody bother me. Um, yeah. That is super interesting. The, um, yeah, I think that part of, uh, becoming more comfortable with programming in general is, 
if you have been in that situation enough times where you felt completely lost and then through the process of trial and error, you figured it out. Once mm-hmm. you've done that enough times, you sort yeah. of become comfortable with that kind of horrible feeling of like, yeah. I don't know that I can do this. Yeah. But eventually you're like, I can probably do this. Like yeah, someone must have probably encountered a similar problem on Stack Overflow yeah. or in like the 1970s and uh, <laughs> invented yeah, some yeah. thing that I'll find out about once I start Googling it. Um, but yeah, I think that that feeling is terrible and uh, like a natural reaction to it might be to like want to retreat a little bit and mm-hmm. pairing does require some amount of openness and vulnerability and um if you're on a team with people, you want people to on your team to like respect you, and uh, if you only ever interact with them when you've already finished your work, like for example yeah. during a code review process, and you show them, yeah. "Here is my best effort. I've taken the time to polish this. What do you think?" <sighs> That's a different thing than like I'm going to show you me sucking, yeah. and I'm going to yeah. suck, and we're going to suck together, and. <laughs> We're here together in this sucking, yeah. and that's part of it. Sure. And I trust you to, you know, see me through this uh, chasm of terribleness, and we're going to go through it together, and we're probably going to be okay. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I definitely agree uh, with that. And I think, you know, maybe when you're newer to programming, Either you, oh, one of the reasons it was so hard at Flatiron 2 is, um, I don't know if you experienced this, but like there, it always felt like, or I always felt like I was on a timer because we had a certain number of labs to complete each day. And of course, and I mean, I knew this in my heart, but like, of course, just completing six labs doesn't mean that, you know, you were more advanced or, um, you know, more than, you know, the you that's only completed three labs, but done so, you know, uh, more carefully and like through having a conversation with another developer and pairing on it. But like at the time, completion was so much more important than comprehension. Hmm. Yeah, to me, mm-hmm. to me, yeah, which is a bad thing. <laughs> Why is that a bad thing? Because then I didn't, I didn't understand uh, enough. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, so uh, the other... So right now we're in this learning on the job section of the conversation. I'm curious um, what else uh, an organization can do to uh, prioritize, make space for uh, learning. Uh, I'll mention where I work, uh, we do a lunch and learn once a month, and I really cherish that. I really uh, find it very fun. And uh, I always feel like I learn from what my coworkers are um, sharing when they present something, and I kind of enjoy the opportunity to share something that I've learned. Um, and they're pretty low stakes. Uh, not everyone presents every week. It's just like if you feel like sharing, we're going to order lunch and we're going to share stuff. Uh, that's like one thing that my company does that I really like. I'm curious. Um, what are the other like avenues for learning that you see on the job? I, I can think of things like pairing is I'm totally on board. I think that makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, is that it? Oh yeah. Um, th- let me clarify really quickly. Like thing, things that a company can do in order to promote learning on mm-hmm. a team. Okay. Yeah. So for me, um, 
like I would I would always first think of perhaps not an event or an activity or like a workshop outside of the the regular um, schedule, but just like how important it is to okay, like in terms of learning. Um, and again, this applies to developers of all levels. Uh, I think that you learn by seeing the way that other people do things. So if you are joining a team, um, this is something that is really important to me, but it's, it is hard to articulate, right? That like, um, sometimes it to me feels like, oh, if you have, I mean, I have never done lunch and learns and I think that I would really like lunch and learns. Um, at the same time, I definitely would want to be careful that like, you know, a lunch and learn exists to, um, solely to serve its purpose as the like learning day, right? Like I feel like mm. there should be a culture of learning 24 seven, so to speak. Um, and that I, I wouldn't want like an isolated, like outside of the norm event. It would be like, Oh, like, I mean, here's the thing, right. It's like, um, Oh, for me, I know. Okay. Or at least I think this is a little bit off topic, but okay. will help me illustrate my point. Um, okay. I think that, I don't know that retros are part of agile. They're definitely like in the four, in the four core statements uh, of agile software development, which you can find online, like re or having retros is not one of those. Um, so maybe that's just like something that is emerged out of agile, whatever. But like um, a lot of teams that I respect uh, and in my own team right now, we do retrospectives and, and I think that they're useful, but like my one most important critique of retro is when a retro becomes the only place to talk about what is not going well. And like, I think like a retro does not have to be that right. Um, it totally depends on the team, but like, I think it's, it's a bad sign if you're saving up uh, all of the things that are not going well to talk about at a retrospective, because then on like a day-to-day -day basis, you, uh, you aren't addressing whatever problem it is. And like also at retro, like it sometimes it can feel, it feels more artificial, like coming up with a plan to address it. Cause you're always like thinking of your best self, right? Whereas like, if you bring up a problem in the moment, sure. Somebody like could be really annoyed because you've disrupted the flow. Um, but then that person can just be like, give me 30 minutes. I can't deal with that right now, you know, but like dealing with problems as they arise are like at least, uh, you know, vocalizing problems as they arise to me is important the same way that like, you know, I, I would not, I would much rather work for a company that like, if say the company didn't do pairing, I would want that company to be very flexible with having a culture where developers were asking questions and they got 
addressed like within the hours, if not minutes of being asked, rather than like having, oh, like Tuesday afternoons are a time where, you know, we like get free time to read whatever software book we want, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so that this is an interesting case where it seems like a analogy, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm following your point, mm-hmm. an analogy to lunch and learns, for example, where if lunch and learns are the only designated space yes. for learning, yes. then that's not good because yeah. you want learning to be part of your culture. Yeah. Similarly, for retros, if that's the only place to <laughs> talk stuff out, then that's not good because then things are waiting too long and you don't have a culture mm-hmm. of like continuous iteration on how you're doing things. It's an interesting case where the analogy is so rich that I kind of want to just talk about the analogy now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I feel like normally... Oh, it's like performance. I mean, the same thing. Oh, my God, like... Yeah, sorry. No, I just got really excited because this, I think even you can extend this analogy or at least like the spirit behind it to performance reviews, right? Like tell me something less meaningful slash more meaningless than a performance review that happens once a year. You know, like that is not something that exists because I mean, like, sure, maybe if you have some like 22 year old who's planning a system of evaluation and feedback, they might think it's a good idea to only give evaluation and feedback once a year because they have no experience. But like anybody with any experience in the workforce and like either being managed or uh, managing people knows, and and it's just like sort of common sense that... (sighs) (laughs) Just so you you might want feedback more often. You might, if if you aren't doing well and you don't get to find out about that for 51 weeks, that's... Not ideal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just dumb. And, like, then it also becomes, I mean, it not only becomes, um, it, it like, well, at least for me, who would ha- like, somebody who would have maybe, like, more of, like, a rebellious or, or like, screw authority type personality. Not totally. Definitely not totally. Like, I'm still a good girl at heart. But, like, um, <laughs> or maybe, like, a demon at heart. I don't know. But, um it not only becomes something that like you question the value of, but strangely too, it becomes super high stakes because you're so scared. You're like, Oh my gosh. Like, and what a lot of times performance reviews at a bad company would turn into would be a way to, you know, like, um, document certain weaknesses in order to fire you, you know, which again, like, uh, first of all, I am not, like, oh, I'm not trigger happy in the sense of like, you know, firing people who are low performers. Like I remember when, and this goes back to teaching too, like Cornelius Miner said this, so I can attribute this. He's amazing. He's um, a consultant for the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project. And he was like, you know, when are people going to learn that you can't fire your way to good teachers? You know, you're going to train your way to good teachers. And like, of course, that was sort of after the wake of all of the ridiculous, like, you know, you fire half the teachers at a school because of low test scores or whatever. But um, yeah, just like immediate uh, feedback is great because you know what you're doing wrong. And if it's immediate, then it hasn't grown to the point of turning from, you know, a like pea-sized problem to a mountain-sized problem. Um, so you're addressing things before they get out of control. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, it just is is better to uh, give. I don't even know how I feel. I don't like any sort of... I guess I don't know if there may be a time in my life when I believe in, like, formal evaluations. Um, but even from, like, my time as teaching, my time as a teacher, I would always... I would always see more value for students in giving them informal feedback. Like say we were doing a writing workshop and I would walk around and I would like read a draft and I would either write a note on a post-it or like we would have a conversation so it wasn't even documented. Um, Like that sort of informal feedback students were so receptive to. Whereas like, you know, you write a paper, you turn it in, you get a grade, if you're lucky, um, you know, your teacher writes some, <laughs> writes some comments on it, but then you're like, sure, it's like formal, I guess, but um, at that point, it's either only gonna like make you super discouraged, make you like not care, or really boost your ego because you did super well. And yeah, uh, bring it back a little bit to um, to close the like. To close the metaphor loop, as uh, as the show is called, uh, to bring it back <laughs> oh, to yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I totally totally appreciate your point that uh, something like a lunch and learn shouldn't be the only uh, place for learning and that it should be part of a day to day hour to hour culture. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to think about it. Um, so the next like area I want to explore a little bit is. Um, Open source. So, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that uh, you and I had um, a couple weekends ago paired on an open source um, uh, contribution to this project called Bridge Troll, yeah. which is the uh, like event organizing uh, platform for mm-hmm. things like RailsBridge, which is a weekend workshop for learning Rails. Yes. And similar uh, uh, similar events like that. It's like the platform for scheduling and RSVP into those events and um, the uh, the code for that app is open mm-hmm. and um, you were motivated to work on it yeah. and I'm curious um, what makes you want to work on that kind of thing maybe what made you want to work on that particular thing and do you see that as like an important part for a software engineer who's interested in growing and learning should they be thinking about what are the projects that I should be contributing to yeah, in open source yeah, and yeah. how do you choose them? And, um, is it okay if you're not doing it? And, um, yeah. uh, what, 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 what role do you think open source plays in gro- growth and learning? Oh yeah, sure. So, I mean, I will say yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. It's okay if you're not contributing to open source. Contributing to open source is really difficult, not only because it can be challenging to find a pro- an open source project that, is well documented and uh, sort of up to date and being actively maintained. But often open source projects like that for a developer new to the field or perhaps have issues that are a little out of their scope. Although I will say that like, if you're at that level and and want to do something, I know ThoughtBot does a lot of open source and one of them of course is the gym should have matchers uh like you can always make 
contributions to the documentation. And then something we ran across when we were running the whole spec, uh, the whole RSpec suite for Bridge Troll was a deprecation warning. Um, so that's something that yet a junior developer can can easily contribute their solution to. Um, oh, for me, in terms of motivation, uh, I wanted to be able to write on my resume that I had contributed to open source. So it came from like more of an extrinsic thing, uh, maybe like also more of like a, not superficial, but like, oh, I wanna be able to say this about myself for people looking to hire me. But then like I had tried, I mean, I have done a few contributions or like very, very, very small contributions to open source and spent like a considerable amount of time looking or like seeking open source projects. And, um, this, I was like, I told myself, I was like, I'm, I want to put this on my resume, but I do not want to do this by myself. Like, I don't like working by myself. I enjoy working with other people um, so much more. And what about if I can turn this into an opportunity not only to contribute, but um, to get in some pair programming <laughs> as well. And I chose Rawlsbridge because... It's super well documented. It's um, very easy to set up your dev environment. Um, it's definitely actively maintained. And also because on the board of RailsBridge is a developer named Sarah Mai, uh, M-E-I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And I follow her on Twitter and I don't know her in person, but uh, from what she posts on Twitter, uh, I, I mean, I agree with a lot of her views about software and just him. I mean, she's definitely somebody that I look up to and um, see as a mentor. So I'm like, oh, if Sarah is on the board of this organization, like this is something that I would want to be a part of. Yeah, I so appreciate that you said that because I think that almost everyone who does open source is doing it on some level to uh, gain um uh, I don't know, recognition or like yeah. to be able to use it to have other opportunities. And I think that that is totally uh, like an unspoken part of it. So I, yeah, I actually appreciate that you are willing too. to speak yeah. to it. Oh yeah. And I, I think that's valid too. Like, um, it, I mean, I, I see a reason is, I see a reason for doing anything as valid as long as you're not hurting anybody else, <laughs> <laughs> including yourself. Um, but uh, it helps too. Like for me, I wouldn't like contributing to open source wouldn't be sustainable if um, I were doing it by myself. And as it is, like even I mean, even contributing to a project like um, Bridge Troll, which is like I, I mean definitely the best open source project I have come across. Uh, it's it's still more challenging than you know writing. If, if you were working, it's harder to be an open source contributor than to, like, you know, um, have your job be the same exact work, not because of any, oh, it's like it's more complex, but because, you know, you're remote, like you don't necessarily know all the other people who are contributing or are planning for this. And um, yeah, it's it's too like so much of building software 
is about relationship building, and that's hard to do, um, you know, when you're spread across the country or the globe. Yeah, and no one is doing it as their full-time job, and so maybe yeah. you post yeah. a comment, and then you hear back, like, 12 days later, yeah. and you're and like... that's pretty good. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I was just saying, and that's pretty good to hear back 12 days later. Yeah. Um, so uh, the other thing you mentioned just in terms of, like, a practical tip, which I, I totally want to just, like, point, uh, you know, hang a lantern on, is mm-hmm. uh, if you do find a project that you want to contribute to, and you're like, where should I start? The first thing that I think would be a totally great way to uh, potentially find something to contribute is to just try to clone the repo, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, run the test, start up the server, and if you have any friction while you're trying to do that, for example, in your case, you saw some deprecation warnings uh, that were being printed during the test, or if something didn't work when you tried to start up the server, but there was an error and you were able to figure out and fix it, like those are awesome first uh, contributions to repos because people are like, oh yeah, you want to contribute, you like came to the campsite, you made, you cleaned up the litter, and you've made it a better place to yeah. spend time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. For sure. <laughs> um, cool. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that there... I, I think that's all I really want to talk about with open source. I'm glad we covered that. Um, uh, okay, so earlier uh, you hinted that... Um, uh, that you wanted to recommend some resources mm-hmm. that you find valuable. So the new theme that I want to explore for a few minutes is um, self-directed learning. So we learn in school environments, we learn on the job, and maybe we learn through contributing to projects. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, sometimes we need to learn whole new concepts and we're kind of on our own. Uh, and there are educational resources like books and screencast series and blogs and... Um, I think that other some people are more book people, some people are more uh, blog people. For me personally, I find screencasts are my favorite way to learn programming concepts because it's a mix of like reading and seeing and listening, and uh, I really find it valuable to just watch someone to do a thing, and that helps me see like, oh, they did the thing while I was looking. There's no magic involved. I could probably do that thing too. And for me personally, that's something that I find like the most. Uh, quick and effective way to learn a new thing. I'm curious for you, like, what are your preferred mode of self-directed learning? And you mentioned re- uh, recommendations, so I'm all about that. I'm curious to receive those. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, well, oh, I I actually haven't used a lot of screencasts, but I like screencasts because you're learning at the pace that the person you know, composing the screencast can type and show something to you, right? So it's like, um, that's a that's a good pace to learn at. Um, although a lot of times it's still accelerated. But in terms of my recommendations, I love books with pictures. <laughs> and I uh, love books that require you to do, you know, work while you're reading them. And so the or my my favorite books for learning i m- like my favorite uh publisher of course is o'reilly and o'reilly is amazing for me i think for new developers there i think it's the head first series i want to say head f- like yeah like jump in head first it's called head first all of the head first books are incredible i've only read the ones on ruby javascript and html css but what i think those books do so expertly is they 
go through very difficult topics. Like in JavaScript, you walk through a closure, but they do it in such a slow, um, well-illustrated, like making something simple is really hard. And HeadFirst does that, like they're masters at doing that. Like basically they are really good at, um, you know, explaining something so that a five-year-old can understand, (laughs) or at least like definitely, uh, you know, somebody with less than a year of programming experience can understand. So those books I love. I really like Sandy Metz's book, uh, 99 Bottles of OOP. And I think the best part about that book is that it starts with you solving a problem. And the whole, the entire book is about... uh, a solution, like you're building toward an object oriented solution to that problem. And at no point does it feel, at no point does it feel like outside of your grasp or irrelevant or abstract because you've done the problem. (laughs) So it's like not only in your language, but it's in your domain and like yeah, you're, you're never lost. I mean, some things, some explanations you may have to read a few times, but, um, that I think is very active learning. So I love that. I love the book Grokking Algorithms again, because it takes what can be a super intimidating and scary topic algorithms. And again, uh, in a very fun and illustrative fashion takes, uh, certain, I guess, like, you know, at its heart, like, what is an algorithm? Like, an algorithm is just, what, like, a solution you come up with for how to solve a problem or, like, a, like, a, I mean, there are certain patterns in algorithms, at least, and, like, um, this book is really good at extracting those patterns, Okay, so that, thank you for those recommendations. Then also, I think it, I appreciate the like uh, figuring out what are the things that were good about them because mm-hmm. I think that that also gets back to the um, uh, the broader theme of like learning and um, teaching. And uh, so I want to kind of explore those a little bit more. So, for example, in the Head First series, you said that they're very good at illustrating and simplifying. Uh, when I'm ever in a, like a teaching context, that's like my whole goal is to try to simplify uh, concepts so that they can um, be the most learnable that I can make them. And I sometimes worry a little bit that I'm being condescending. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you like oversimplify, so like there's sort of a dance where you're like, all right, I'm gonna yeah. simplify, and then I'm gonna gauge the like the reception, and then maybe speed it up or slow it down. And there's a bit of a adjustment period and then eventually you get into a groove where like you're kind of locked in on on the pace that makes sense Uh, a book can't necessarily do that but maybe through the process of editing they can arrive at a good pace that works for the most people Um, so how do you simplify an idea like if you have closures for example in javascript are Mm -hmm. a pretty heady topic um, Mm -hmm. I would rather not try to define them right now. I I feel like I could try, but I'm, I'd rather not. I've forgotten everything. 
<laughs> oh, I was going to say, I, yeah, I couldn't define them either. Like, I've forgotten almost everything I know about closures. I even gave a talk on closures. <laughs> and I couldn't explain it well now. But to answer your question really quickly, how to simplify something, I think there are, like, a couple tricks. One of them is all, with analogies. Like, analogies are amazing, right? If you can find something that the person already understands and, like, relate that to something they don't understand, that's, like, a hanging-on point for them, right? And another way, like, to me, uh, as somebody who's also a super visual learner, having something drawn out Oh my gosh, that's amazing. If you can draw something out for me, uh, that, yeah, that's a way of making, if, you know, if you're drawing something, it has to be simple enough to sketch, right? Uh, so those, drawing something out, um, what was the other thing I said? Analogies. Oh, analogies. Yeah, yeah. And, um, oh, yeah, I mean, it's just super hard to make something simple. So, you know, if possible, you want to get somebody like you can't always to me, I'm always like, oh, my gosh, like, how can I use all the resources that are available to me to make this the best that it can be? Like, I would ask for help and I would be like, OK, here's what I have so far. And I would get somebody to read it who doesn't understand, ideally, who doesn't understand, say, for example, closures in JavaScript. And I'd be like, what doesn't make sense to you? And that's where I would be like, all right, we got to switch that. I mean, we got to fix that. And then the other component of that is once you have kind of simplified it and uh, I'm, an analogy comes to mind now. I'm, uh, tell me if this works for you. I'm picturing like a toolbox just full of tools. And you kind of like take out all the toolbox, take, take all the tools out of the toolbox, show them one by one. And then eventually, uh, once you've done all the work of simplifying it and you have uh, achieved like uh, understanding uh, on the simple version, you sort of eventually do need to like uh, put it back together yeah, yeah, yeah. and then connect it back to, all right, so now that we know what we're talking about through analogy and through simplification, how do we then bring it back to the actual thing and uh, and bring it back to the more complex thing? Yeah. Like, I don't know, like, desimplifying, is there a term for that concept? I feel like that's an important part of it. Yeah, I mean, just breaking something down into its smallest parts, I would think, you know? Like, uh... What did you, something you said reminded me of some, some other teacher tactic too. Oh, no, while you were saying that, yeah, like, um, to me, to me, some things like I can't describe how to do, I would just, in terms of like breaking something down into its simplest parts and desimplifying it, like I, I wish it would be so cool and like, I bet some people can do this. <laughs> Um, to like describe how you would do that. To me, that's a process of trial and error. Um, but like another thing too is that yes, you want your explanation to be um, clear and simple. But ultimately, it's also super important to like reinforce learning by having your student uh, like go through their own work say like head first is really great it has practice problems you know and so especially for something like I remember the there's like this whole section devoted to closures like you didn't start you didn't start that section by trying to you know implement a closure in order to take the sum of elements in an array um but 
that was the end exercise. And there were say like five exercises leading up to that. Cause you really don't know how well you understand something until you try to do it. And so then on the topic of, uh, making texts that are accessible and, um, simple enough to start learning. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that there are, that there is a place for texts that don't do that, that maybe assume more, uh, background knowledge and say like, don't read this unless you already know JavaScript really well. And we're going to assume that, and we're going to jump into some advanced topics from there. Uh, or even those maybe should spend some time building up a ramp to get you into those advanced topics. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that, but I, part of me, I, I think I, I think that there is a place for things that assume less and that there's always like a scale and, um, that especially for beginner focused texts, you have to really take the time to build that ramp properly. But, um, I think no matter what you need to define, uh, who your thing is for and how to get into it, um, but, but there probably are different kinds of texts, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would say 100% there is a place in the software canon <laughs> for books, unlike the books that I'm talking about, like unlike Headfirst, um, that assume a level of knowledge. I would agree with you for sure that, you know, regardless of the... Um, the scope of the book and what it's going to teach you, it's very helpful for, you know, the author to take a little bit of time to, um, you know, let you, or, or, or explain at the beginning, like, oh, in order for this book to be useful to you, like you should be at, or you should know X, Y, Z, or, you know, you should have, you know, experience with whatever. And, um, uh, yeah, because like, you know, if you didn't have those kind of books, like what would people who know a lot about programming actually read? But at the same time, I think that like, just because those books are high level doesn't mean that they don't have to use learning slash teaching strategies like active learning, you know, because a lot of the times, like some of those, I don't know that I've ever read a book like that to completion. The one that comes to mind is actually one you recommended to me, which is called, uh, domain driven design. Did I recommend that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I haven't read it. Yeah. 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 Which I, I've read like the intro to that book and maybe a little bit of the first chapter. And like, I definitely want to finish that book. And I, I, um, think that book has a lot to offer me. Um, still with books like that, uh, I would say that I wish there were more high level books like that, whose scope was more narrow and, um, that focused on maybe instead of four things focused on one thing and you, and, and instead of, you know, talking about four concepts really well, um, only talked about one concept really well, but then the time that was spent on the three additional concepts is now spent on creating like Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen did in 99 bottles, um, a practice problem to start with that then is illustrated like some high level concept is then illustrated as a solution to that problem, or at least like that problem, um, leads to whatever concept is being discussed in the book. We need more short books. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, so the uh, that brings us to this the second book that you recommended, Ninety Nine Bottles of OOP. Is yeah, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the thing that was great about that for you that you were just reiterating is the idea that it comes with a practice problem, uh, and then uh, it makes you very engaged. Because I I do think that I have read books where I haven't felt very engaged, and yeah. um, <laughs> uh, and I like that. I really want to read that now. To, yeah, oh, uh, that's so good. Um, experience that because um, because of exactly what you said. Um, that's a great trick, and I don't know any other books that do that. I, I guess there yeah. are some that yes. have yeah, uh, like that kind of encourage you to like consider this code and think about it. And you're like, right? They're they're yeah, there are books that do a pretty good job of like using code to illustrate a point, but they're like code snippets, and they're never more than a page. And if they are more a page, it's not great either. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that, uh, so before we move on from self-directed learning, um, h- how much of that is a, is a, should we be doing, do you feel? Like, uh, I have a lot of programming books that I've never opened. That I, I, I buy a lot of programming books from recommendations, and I'm like, I will read this. Uh, and I'm, I, don't, I don't know. I, I think that uh, you know, I try to learn through work, and I try to learn uh, through um, maybe blogging occasionally, but... Yeah. Uh, like, how how much of that do you think we should be doing? And again, should we feel bad if we're not really doing it? Um, in terms of, like, should, I think that I would not prescribe, like, any amount of outside-of-work hours because... Okay, here's the thing. It's like, you know, I hate reading job announcements. Oh, my gosh. Like, I remember I read one that was like, <laughs> like, must... It was crazy. It was like, must, um, like, actively contribute to open source projects and, uh, you know, have a technical blog and, uh, I don't know, just, like, all these things. And I was just like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, so I hate that kind of... I just don't like that kind of expectation, and and I um, am, am very much a believer in like you know, you your job is your job, and you know your life is your life. But at the same time, like I'm somebody who spends a lot of time outside of work, uh, learning, and and to me, it's like it's not about a certain number of hours or a certain percentage of your time. It's like either. Oh, I will say this, that it's just, even though it's kind of like, it's in the beginning for me, it, it was just like taking my medicine, even though it tasted a little better, <laughs> like doing work outside of my job, it allowed me to understand more and like be a good enough programmer to give me more satisfaction at work. Because if you're like, when you're new to the field, like you're, you just, there's so much you don't know. Like it can sometimes be really challenging to like go to work and just spend the whole day learning, Mm -hmm. you know? So like, I would say as much as it, um, as much in the beginning, right? Like as, as much as it helps you feel, uh, like feel less frustration. But then outside of that, I try, I, I try really hard to like, spend my time whatever outside of work time I'm using to get better as a developer like it's usually something that is interesting to me or that I enjoy like oh one thing I love is 
I love doing a lot of the problems on exorcism, which mm-hmm. I found out about because Katrina Owen, the co-author of 99 Bottles, uh, she's like the lead person on that. And I think it was like, she's the one who developed that project and, um, maintains that site. And, uh, that's really fun because a lot of the problems are more object oriented rather than just pure, like algorithmic, you know, and I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, but in, in general, if I were to, if I were like, if I had to answer that as a multiple choice question, I would say that like, <laughs> we're not obligated to do anything outside of work. <laughs> we shouldn't be. All right. Yeah, I like that. So you're saying like, uh, when you first started working after your coding bootcamp experience, you were pleasantly surprised to see that um, you felt somewhat prepared. Yeah. But. Nevertheless, there are always going to be things that you don't know, and if you do feel a gap and, and you would feel better to spend some time filling that in, I think that, you know, if you have time to do it, you might benefit from that, but yeah. it's sort of an unfair expectation to assume that everyone will have yeah. time to work outside of work. Yeah. Uh, you spoke a little bit about, like, job listings. Uh, I'm curious. Uh. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, um, you know, uh, we may not, as like a industry, know how to. Um, we're trying to get better at like knowing how to teach programming and and get more people to be able to learn it. Uh, do we know how to assess programming skill and and find people that are good candidates? Or are we good at uh, figuring out whether to hire people or not yet? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think some, you know, as with everything, some companies are better than others. Uh, I will say I, I do really like, I love Stride's policy of hiring, mm-hmm. uh, which is that you have a phone screen and that serves as, um, you know, just sort of like, it, it, it serves the purpose of, uh, almost all phone screens, which I imagine, again, like, <laughs> I'm not a recruiter and I've never performed a phone screen, but it's just like, oh, is this person, um, it, it, well, I, oh, I guess, I'm just like, do I even know what a phone screen is for? Maybe <laughs> it's like for filtering out, you know, people who are just like clearly not candidates who would succeed or enjoy themselves in this role. Similarly, like who don't, I mean, a recruiter's not going to necessarily be able... It's not like a technical assessment, generally. Um, but but I guess it's more about like, oh, is this person polite, friendly? Can they stick to a time um, at which the call has been set? <laughs> and are they? do they have clear answers to simple questions? Not simple questions. These are hard questions. But like, do they have... Have they already, you know, thought about why they want to work here and what do they know about the company? You know, those things I find, like, have been the purpose of phone screens I've done. That's fine. That's good. Um, And the next stride has you do a code test. um, And the purpose of the code test is to assess your technical skill. And for this code test, you are allowed to seek feedback from 
developers at Stride. They set you up with a coffee date with another developer so you can work on the problem and then go over your draft solution with whoever you're having coffee with. And they also allow you to seek help from other people outside of Stride. Uh, so I think, I think that's great. The last step is when you go for um, your final day interview. And at that point, uh, you do a pairing session. And from what I understand, the purpose of pairing is to assess your, you know, um, ability to pair with another person, right? Like your empathy level, your communication level, like, you know, all of that stuff outside of technical ability, like your technical ability has been assessed through the test. Like the pairing is, is just about, um, like pairing sort of skill. And, uh, so yeah, I think that, uh, that's a good system. Um, what are the things about that that are uh, good or like the places where you could, um, if they were done differently, they might be looking for the wrong things or might be, um, uh, not looking for the things that they should be looking for. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I don't like, I think I'm not totally again. I mean, uh, a different, a totally different technical assessment would be to do a whiteboarding challenge. And me, I'm not like, I, I think it's all about execution. Like I have nothing against whiteboarding challenges per se. I don't think that, you know, if you, what is like any sort of, um, like, uh, oh, you know, those problems, like the hard problems that you would find in a book like um, Cracking the Code Interview, I think that big green book. Okay. Uh, <laughs> like th- those, uh, I generally don't feel they're a good way to assess technical skill. It's just, it's, it's sort of similar to like using um, standardized tests in that you're assessing that person honestly you're just assessing like whether that person has committed the time to learning how to solve those type problems like i mean binary search is a big one um like oh all the different sorts you know like bubble sort and uh yeah (laughs) sorting sorting algorithms um so (laughs) uh oh but like What do I like about the process I talked about at Stride? Like, what are the things that it seemed to be looking for that uh, you were glad that the, that it was assessing those? Oh problems? yeah. Oh, that's such a great way of that's like such a great way of framing that question. Um, well, yeah. In the technical challenge, it was looking for, in some way, right? Like, are you going to consider other people's opinions? <laughs> Mm-hmm. And are you going to like seek help and feedback with your code? To me, that's, that's super important. Right. And like, that's something that I do. And that's something that the people that I work with, I, you know, would love for them to do as well. Um, and, oh, too, like, I like that the pairing part is more, or yeah, that it is, um, scoped just to assessing more of those like communication type skills because 
Uh, I, I was going to say, you know, because people get nervous and they're not necessarily like on their best game uh, in an artificial setting. Like you're trying to solve a technical problem, you know, with somebody else, like, which is true. Uh, but also what just more generally I like about this process that Stride has come up with is that as a candidate, it's so clear to me that they've put a lot of thought into it and that, uh, for them, this isn't just something that they're like, oh, the industry standard is to ask these questions you know, or, or to get somebody to solve this problem on the whiteboard, like, oh, a coding, oh, this is so true, a coding, a coding challenge and an interview process reflects the values of the company. And, um, and to me, the process there reflected values like, you know, they care about collaborative learning. Um, they care about, uh, editing code to make it better based on feedback. Um, they care about how well a person can um, communicate with another person uh, in terms of, you know, talking about code. They care about, um, oh, well, this was like, this is more technical, but I like that Oh, also they were like very clear when it came to the code test of what they cared about, which I really appreciated because they outlined sort of how you will be graded. Um, a big, I think the first was object oriented or the first was design and the second was performance. And then like further down were things like, or no, 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 sorry, sorry. The first was design. The second was correctness. And then further down was performance. And I'm just like, that's so amazing and to me essential. If you're going to give somebody a code test, let them know what their codes or how their code's going to be evaluated. It sounds like a harmony of uh, values and uh, between you and them potentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so I have one last topic, um, and it is uh, I mentioned that I was scrolling through your Twitter. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. To harvest some ideas There's for things to talk about. There's a lot of non-developer stuff on there, too. Yeah, so this last topic is uh, running. And uh, you, I believe, are really into running. And yeah. um, you have one tweet where you mention that you have a running mantra. Or maybe it was just for one day you had a running mantra, which was strong and capable. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. And I, I like that. I don't have a, I don't run. Uh, I, but I imagine I could have, like, a coding mantra. <laughs> Or, yeah. I don't know, like yeah. a commuting mantra. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm curious. Uh, so kind of open-ended question. First of all, do you have a coding mantra and what is it? And if you're, you know, if it's not one of those private ones that you're not supposed to share. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Uh, and second, like, I don't know, do you feel that running uh, has any bearing on you as a programmer? Do, does it help you in any way as a programmer? Oh, yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of running. Um, I love, I'm so glad you brought up running cause I love, 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 I love to run. I love to talk about running and, uh, I mean, sadly right now I have a stress fracture, so I, I'm off, uh, the running, but yes, I think that, um, 
running a hundred percent makes me a better programmer. I remember in the golden days of being able to run, which was just a few weeks ago, the best part of my day was getting to run during my lunch break because I currently work really close to Central Park. And so I could take the BD train, just two short stops and be at Columbus Circle and run. And also very fortunate to have a sort of like flexible work schedule where I could do that during lunch, um, which is something I certainly could have never done as a teacher. (laughs) So, um, oh yeah. And just like, I mean, this is not you know, sadly, I would love to say only running can do this, but really it's just like exercise in general. But for me being able to split up my day with running, um, so I got all of the, you know, like, um, benefits, like the endorphin rush and all of that, which in turn helped me, I think to think more clearly. And also it's just like running whatever, whatever you are worried about or like whatever is you know, a source of concern and stress when you run, it's just like, um, sometimes you're like worrying about that while you're running, but it seems less important. And to me, I was like, it was so amazing to really have this mindset of like, you know what, um, whatever happens today, it's going to be okay because I get to run. And you would think that like that mindset would make you less motivated or like, um, you would lower your standards, but that's not true. At least for me, I, because I didn't feel, I don't know, because I had running as an outlet, like, um, I think I was more focused and more motivated during the time, um, when I was working. So, oh yeah, but coding mantras, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I don't have a coding mantra, at least like, I don't have one the same way that I, uh, oh, I don't have one the same way that I do with running, which is like, oh, even when I was younger, um, and I would like in high school when I would do cross country races, I didn't have a mantra I should have, but like I, during my races, like I would get a song stuck in my head and I would just like sort of sing the chorus over and over. And, and that to me like served the point of a mantra and that it like focused me. Um, and then now that's what, like, even now I'll say like strong and capable, like strong and capable when I'm running. So for coding, um, yeah, no, I don't have a mantra. Um, strong and capable, uh, would totally, that's like a great stand in mantra until I find a substitute. Uh, but then also I read this book, this amazing book called, uh, Kara Goucher's running for women and Kara Goucher is my favorite runner. She's my role model in a lot of things, not only running and, um, Oh, she was talking about like each year her and her coach would decide, sometimes it lasted more than a year, but like, um, they would decide on a word that described her. And, um, it was so, she talked about how a year she was dealing with a lot of injuries. Um, her word was fighter. And then I'm like, Oh, for me as a runner and as a coder, 
my like one word description or, or like what I would try to embody would be believer. Cause mm. yeah, 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 yeah. Like I'm always, I believe so much that confidence can increase performance. Um, and that applies to running. And like, I believe in myself to get stronger and faster as a runner. Um, and I also believe in my capacity to be, uh, you know, stronger and smarter as a coder. <laughs> All right. So that was the last topic I wanted to explore. So I just wanted to thank you for mm-hmm. joining me uh, in, for this conversation and also for uh, helping me revive this podcast because I actually <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably wasn't going to until you we talked about it. You were yeah. like, yeah, I would do that. Uh, and so, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, um, where can people find you online if they want to get more Meredith Edwards wisdom? (laughs) Um, yes, you can find me, uh, on Twitter at Meredith underscore Marg, all lowercase M E R E D I T H underscore M A R G and GitHub. My handle is M Edwards. 1771. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Max. It was a real pleasure. You did it. <laughs> Yay! Whoa, we recorded for a long time. Yeah, I, uh, 